0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the 12th episode of Keeping It Simple with Simplify. So I guess 12 episodes go by fast when you're having fun and this is exactly what we've planned for today. So my name is Bobby Ivanova. I'm with the sales team, and it's my pleasure to introduce you, Stephen Van Meter. He's from Atlas Partners and also the founder of Portfolio Shield. So Steve has grown quite a lot of audience on Twitter and YouTube by discussing different market topics. And today we're going to discuss the role of bonds and portfolios with our very own Mike Green and Harley Bassman. But before we get started, let's go through the housekeeping items real quick. So if you have any questions, please use the Q&A function on your screen and we will try to answer as many as we can live. And also remember this conversation is meant to be uh, entertaining and informative and it's not financial advice. So with that, let me pass it over to you, Mike.
1: Bobby, thank you very much. One of the fun parts about doing these KISS episodes is, is for people to get a chance to meet new members of the team. Bobby, thank you for that excellent introduction. And I'm really happy to bring on my friend Steven Metra and my good friend and partner Harley Bassman whose primary objective in life is to try to get me to admit that I am wrong about inflation. So who else could I bring on but another deflationist? My good friend Steven uh, approached us actually with a question that we run into more and more in the RIA space. And so rather than focus exclusively on inflation which we know Harley's wrong, We're going to try to bring his insights to the party as we think about the dynamic of, well, what role do bonds play in a portfolio other than lose money? So when we we think about that question, this is one that a lot of people are struggling with, whether it's in a 60-40 portfolio, whether it's in a risk parity type hedging approach. And let's just get it kicked off right on that front. Stephen you've used bonds really successfully within your Portfolio Shield product for several years now to protect the portfolio. Maybe you could give just a quick discussion of what Portfolio Shield is and how you use bonds in that portfolio.
2: Yeah, that's a great place to start, Mike. So Portfolio Shield is a long U.S. equity strategy, and it has a unique hedging mechanism, as you mentioned, with bonds. It's completely formula-based, And the reason I created it was simply because as an RA, you're typically running an asset allocation model, maybe a risk parity model um, that you're advising your clients to go in. And the same thing continued to came up is like, can can we get something better? Uh, Markets going up and we're not going up quite as much. Market goes down, we're losing more. And i said you know i mean these things have been around longer than i have but let me see what i can do and one of the things i want to do is strip out the emotion of advisors and so i deconstructed these different strategies to find out all the things that they did wrong and then i went to the task of seeing if i could create something following a formula based on all of the macro data how the monetary system works how the credit cycles work and i was able to do that and so what portfolio Shield does. On the equity side of the strategy, on the first training day of every month, it runs two formulas. The first formula asks, should we hedge? And so if it meets the hedging criteria, it reduces the equity exposure and adds duration or a long-term bond fund to the allocation. A second formula is then is run, and this formula is in regardless of whether the strategy is hedging or not, but it looks at the equity side of the portfolio. So in my case, there are two equity positions we have. We're long the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 with some downside hedging in it. And we also then, when when the strategy is actually hedging on its own, it adds an additional uh, treasury fund to it. But what that formula, the second formula does is it looks at those two, if it's not hedging, or three when it is hedging and says, let's buy as more money to the least volatile of those positions over its look back period. And so the goal of the strategy was to look at what what do most americans invest in well they're along the u.s equity market so how can i create a product that gives or a strategy that gives them more alpha more upside with less downside risk than a traditional strategy strip out my own personal biases and apply a formula to it and so every month those formulas are run if it's rebalanced according to that and so on so forth
1: Now, when you came to, when you and I began speaking last year on exactly this subject, one of the discussions that came up was exactly this issue of, can we continue to rely on bonds to provide that protection in the portfolio? And one of the things that we decided that we could do is is use as equity market substitutes. So replacements for the S&P 500, for example, some of the simplified strategies that embed downside protection, which takes away some of the extreme tail risk that bonds fail in an extreme market outcome. Now, what we've seen on a year-to-date basis is what I would describe as kind of the middling outcome. We haven't seen an extreme move in bonds, We have, or I'm sorry, in equities, but we've seen a, a reasonable sell-off. And bonds have unfortunately joined it. And in many ways, if I look at indices like the bond volatility index, and I'm gonna pull up on my screen here just very quickly, um, the picture of the move index, which some guy um, invented back at Merrill Lynch years and years and years ago. This is similar to the VIX in that it measures the volatility of the bond surface. And one of the things that's very clear when you look at this this framework is is that bond volatility is elevated significantly more than equity volatility is. Although we don't show the VIX here, you can see that we're already at levels similar to LTCM um, or the uh, events of um, uh, the, the bond massacre in 1994 where bond volatility, in other words, uncertainty about interest rates is hitting very high levels, Harley. I think you know the guy who created this index. What what's your read on what's going on with this archaic and somewhat useless formula?
3: Thank you, Mike. Um, uh, you know the the um, the move's doing what it's supposed to be doing. I mean, we we with the Fed, you know, basically pressured volatility down. I mean that it, that was a feature, not a bug to reduce volatility, to encourage people to invest, to take risk, animal spirits, and everything else. Uh, what's happening now is they're releasing their hand um, from the scale, and uh, we don't know how far it's going to go. Um, are, we'll talk about some more stuff later on about where rates and inflation might go to, but the reality is at the states, we don't know. And um, when you uh, you know start to mix in uncertainty and you toss in, you you pull away a bit of the moral hazard, uh, you get this. Um, and and um, more importantly, what we're seeing now is not just uniform interest rate risk. Usually when you get a curve flattener or a steepener, whatever, you'll have the two-year go up by 10, the bond go up by, by five, so you get flatter by five. Basically, they both go the same direction, they're both red they're both green. What we've been seeing for the last month is, is um, pure twisting, uh, where bonds are up and twos are down and vice versa. Um, this is almost unhedgeable risk, I will tell you, as, as someone who sat in the seat for, for many, many years, uh, I can handle, you know, steepening and flattening when everything goes together. Um, I can adjust the ratios. When you get twisting, it's, it's it's unhedgable risk. And that's why you're seeing these balls really explode is the complete, you know, uh, disintegration of correlation along the yield curve.
1: Well, part, part of what we're seeing also in this and, and the construction of the move index, which actually is not at all archaic and is quite useful. Uh, is the, the volatility of the two-year point, the five-year point, the 10-year point, and the 30-year point, correct? Did I, did I miss anything at the front? Is it three-month as well? or
3: Nope, twos fives, 10's, 30's, but I have a double weighting on the 10-year because that's like the benchmark for most assets.
1: Right, and this, this index in particular was actually built for your background. Stephen is known as the Bond King on YouTube. You're known as the convexity maven in various circles, But that's not convexity necessarily as it relates to the shape payoff of a uh, option per se. It's much more tied to the dynamic of hedging in the mortgage space. And this has been an area that I would argue is going to be increasingly critical going forward. You've highlighted, and I'm going to pull up the slide, that we've seen a significant deterioration in the difference between mortgage bonds and risk-free bonds. The mortgage bonds have moved much more rapidly. Mortgage rates have risen much more rapidly than bonds have. Um, a- a- any thoughts there? I mean, because this is that that extension of the duration of a mortgage where it doesn't get refinanced frequently is really what you are referring to when you talk about the convexity maven dynamic. Well, that,
3: not really. Um, um, okay, I mean, thank you. I, first off, the move is functionally equivalent to the VIX. It's 30-day constant implied volatility, so one-month options. Yep. Um, the concept about about mortgages, um, mortgages are, I mean, they're important, but um, my comment about that would be uh, Lindbergh landed. You already missed it, man. We already had the extension risk. Uh, most, most mortgages in the market are twos and two and a half and a few threes, which are trading well below par. Uh, when you want to look at a mortgage convexity, you want bonds trading around, you know, 99 to 103. That's where max convexity is. So we've all, we've already extended. This chart here um, is is my favorite uh, my favorite way to value mortgage securities. We're talking ordinary Fannie and Freddie, you know, mortgage bonds, no credit risk, um, billions and billions trade, you know, every second. This is a measure of the interest rate of a mortgage bond, like a Fannie 4, uh, whatever par is. Relative to the interest rate of a ten-year swap, and the average, the forever average is about 75. Um, right now, it's it's been batting around between 1, one 105 and 115. This is extraordinarily cheap, um, and, and, and um, this is basically what what you're seeing here is, is what happens when the market actually you know starts to price things in without the Fed's heavy finger on the scale. Mortgages have widened out to make room for the fact that Fed's going to stop rolling over principal repayments um, and gotten cheap enough where I'm pretty sure we could take down whatever we have to. Um, At this stage of the game, you're going to see uh, total return uh, active bond managers have to overweight mortgage securities um, from here. So kind of of all safe back in the pond. But um, as far as everything else goes, that's unclear. I mean, what we haven't seen is the uh, interest rates in general. So kind of the fives on out kind of find their level for um for, for the for, for market conditions i mean the stock market is still near the high so the economy is kind of doing okay inflation's running i don't know eight to ten it'll come down for sure but i mean um a two and a half three percent long bonds is the wrong number um uh so we're going to find out pretty soon whether uh whether you know it's going to go up a lot to match where it's supposed to be or you know the yield curve is blinking and winking to a recession next year
1: and let me just show that quick, that chart very quickly um, in terms of the yield curve, which you've also been helpful to provide here, right? So um, not only are we seeing this in the spot market, which is now actually fully inverted, if only for a temporary period. So this red line went below the black line in the most recent observations. But if we look at the forward rates, and so just to emphasize what this is, this is a two-year bond that begins in one year forward, right? So starting in a 2023, expiring in a maturing in a 2025 framework. And again, I actually misspoke there. It's not a bond per se. This is actually a swap, right? This is the swap spreads. Call it bonds. Okay. We'll call it bonds. We're not going to worry about it that much. We've inverted to an extraordinary degree. This is the type when you say alarm bells ringing, I just want to emphasize for people that this is the type of yield curve inversion that we saw when Volcker forced rates higher, right? So it's, it's particularly important for people to recognize that, that forward rates are not so much a prediction as they are a non-arbitrage condition that exists, right? You have to have a 10-year bond, has to be a series of one-year bonds, the non-arbitrage condition associated with those dynamics, where you can reinvest in a five, where you could reinvest in a three, et cetera is what's creating this forward picture that you're using here. And what is suggesting to us or what the data would seem to suggest is is that the Fed is committed to an aggressive hiking pattern that the bond market, um, as the ever wise Jeff Snyder is pointing out has sniffed out that there's something wrong here. Carly, is there anything wrong with what I said other than celebrating Jeff Snyder?
3: I think it's very important to recognize one thing this is a a, a a TV show here where we want to go and get your attention and, and teach you things and and, and get business and it's important to have eye candy to attract your attention. You've Got to have a sparkly little toy to get your attention. This is a sparkly little toy that gets your attention because it looks so crazy. But let's be clear, as we had from our guest last last month, the actual rule is the three month versus the ten year in spot space. It means current, not forward. So although this looks pretty bad and pretty alarming, in reality, we have not actually crossed, the rule for a recession has not actually been tested yet. And Mike, you can expand upon that a little bit. Now, this should get you scared, but we're not there yet. And and so um, this is a lot of uncertainty. And once again, this is why you're seeing volatilities in the bond market rise so much, because we're seeing this kind of Signal, but the real signal has not occurred. The real signal when we get it means you're 14 to 16 months away from a recession, which strangely enough, if we had it, I mean, if, if you called it right, it would say the recession clock, we start the clock at the right time. It would come in September, June, September of next year, which is where the Euro curve peaks out. So, Mike, you want to go from there?
1: Well, one of the things that I would would point out here, and this is this is a dynamic that i'm kind of trying to flag for people and i I haven't come to a conclusion on it yet is there's a part of me that says and i'm just going to show this on the screen here that the coronavirus and the dynamics around the feds involvement from basically the fourth quarter of 2018 until the summer of 2020 like there's a weird part of this that almost says we're going right back into the same regime and the same underlying dynamic that we were before the repo crisis in the fourth quarter of 2018. That, you know, you can almost draw a line that extends down there. I'm seeing this in unemployment figures. I'm seeing this in inflation type dynamics. I'm seeing this in a lot of areas around, um, traditional economic signals that effectively we were headed into a recession in 2018, 2019, and the severity of the COVID first shutdown and then response, the stimulus associated to it, basically made that recession super severe, super short, super compressed, but didn't solve any of the problems, the structural problems that were that we were facing going into that 2018, 2019 global slowdown. Harley, do you have a reaction to that? Or is that just me pontificating, which it happens all the time?
3: Very, very frequent. Well, what I'd say is this. These, we did get the signal uh in, in, in uh, late 18, which signaled a recession in March of 2020. And we did get it. Did the curve predict COVID? I guess it did. Um, But uh, we, we did get it. And so it, it does do work. I, I'd like to circle back to what, what, what Steve was talking about before. Let me just say, Steve, that, I think as you've designed your concept, I love it. It's unlevered risk parity and the data all supports that it works. And I like that. So two questions I have for you. One's easy, one's harder. When you make your monthly signals, and I love the idea of pulling out the emotion because we are human beings. We like to, we're social animals. We like to be with the crowd. We want to go and buy the highs and sell the lows. It's just just something we want to do. You've removed that. And I commend you for that but how much of what you're doing is, is this decision process is a fundamental process in the data or a momentum process?
2: Well, that, that's a good question because it is a momentum strategy um, and it doesn't use any fundamental analysis in, in the formulas at all. So that, there's none of that. It, it's, it is more of a momentum strategy and it's looking at some relationships between the equity market and the bond market. And in those historical relationships, It says these are conditions which we should be hedging, even though it knows that there is a certain percentage of the time it's going to be wrong. But when it's right and things go really wrong, then the the strategy really shines. So I know going into it, there is no perfect hedge. And there are times like we saw this first quarter where the hedge got caught in the tail of the bond market sell. That's never happened in the strategy, but it is again, it is a it is a momentum strategy. But if you look at the U.S. equity market and you look at all the strategies being created today, they're largely it's a momentum market. So how do you beat a momentum market is you have to create a momentum strategy that rides as much of it up as you can, but then tries to risk control in a different way than everyone else is using.
3: So what I'd, I'd go on to say is that I think you should change your moniker from being the Bond King to being Bridgewater for civilians. That's really what you're doing over here is you're offering risk, unlevered, unlevered, risk parity for civilians at a fair price with easy access. So I've given you, the I've, I've sold you stuff and I, and I feel comfortable doing that. But here's the problem, uh, which, which uh, I've been talking about for a number of years now is that what kicks the legs out of this whole notion is the assumption that correlations continue. The correlation that stocks up, bonds down in price, or as we measure it in geek land, bonds, uh, bond rates up, stock prices up uh, in, in that. Because that's how we have to do it that way because we can't measure bond prices. And what we've seen, and there's this chart, and the other chart, um, both of them Mike, I think Mike likes maybe, um, is that as long as rates have been low and since the Fed jammed rates down uh, uh, you know, in 2000, uh, you've seen this correlation hold very firmly. Stocks up, bonds down, self-hedging, risk parity, genius, it works. However, we have evidence, historical evidence, not proof, that when rates or inflation rises, rates above maybe four and change, that correlation flips. And that's really the silver bullet for your strategy for anyone doing risk parity um yours is unlevered so it won't be that bad what guys are going to take us out and we have seen when this correlation has flipped it did it in november december of 18 and then march of 2020 and both those times you saw massive drawdowns in everything because the levered risk parity guys had to exit whereas you won't Those ride it on out but Aren't you do you buy into the idea that this correlation is forever or is more a function of rates?
2: Well, I, I don't I don't think this relationship is broken, but I, I do want to kind of bring up a couple of comments that I get about the strategies and I and I think perhaps you're going kind of that direction of of what did I create? Because people will often ask is, well, what happens in a rising rate environment? Well, simple the strategy won't hedge in fact that you know and then we get to the next question of well why are you using simplifies funds Is because under certain conditions in the market they give me something i didn't have before uh, you know i like to refer to them as crash protection because effectively that's what they are so if there's a period where the strategy is not hedging And there's obviously potential elevated market risk where I have to say, well, the formula says don't hedge, can't override it, that's what it is, but we have this additional protection, we can still provide some risk control. Because when you really step back and look at what I created, and I think you mentioned this, I created a product, essentially, for the average American who's long the US equity market. The problem is they buy these other strategies and because money managers are chasing returns, Their safety net of their strategy, they eventually adjust because they know if they're not getting the returns they need, people will leave. And when the risk off event happens, now they're caught with their pants down because they have no risk control. And I, I didn't want to create that. I wanted, you know, I've I've sat in front of too many people as a financial advisor who I've met over the years that got wiped out because whoever they were with or whatever strategy was just taking too much risk. So we start to then move into, is this bond relationship broken? And that's a big question right now. And people are looking at strategies like mine saying, well, we've seen this worked, does it work going forward? And the answer is, yeah, it does because the monetary system hasn't changed. The credit cycles haven't changed. And what a lot of people, I don't think understand hardly is there's a supply and demand for credit. So if you have rising interest rates, well, it has to be met by rising demand for loans and so in this what we're seeing right now is rates are rising and the mortgage data particularly the refinance data is crashing because homeowners are saying no, i'm not going to refinance at higher rates in fact we're seeing more and more evidence that people don't want to refinance or don't want to borrow at these higher rates so if you have a market in terms of perhaps speculators pushing rates higher well they're betting that there's going to be demand for those rates and when there's not they come crashing down and then you see the yield curve start to steepen because the twos tens and everything else starts coming down and that's kind of the whole basis of the strategy is the system hasn't changed and so when people ask me I always tell them the monetary system hasn't changed yes it can go through periods where it appears that something's changing the system hasn't changed and the strategy knows that so today it's not hedged anymore but I tell people when the curve starts to steepen, things will shift, it will probably end up at some point rehedging, and it'll catch that big move higher in bonds and do what I designed it to do.
3: I'll swing back and say your strategy has worked just fine when you start your calendar at 2001, and the correlation between stocks and bonds is negative, and they hedge each other.
2: Well, 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 I'd like to answer that because that is a good question by law, I can only backtest the ETFs to the inception of the ETFs, and I did
3: that. Oh, no, I, 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 you've done nothing wrong. I'm just saying, no. we well, investors, I mean, people in, in, in our reasonable investing lifetime, we've only seen a negative correlation of stocks to bonds. So, and, 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 and if you look at this chart here, you can see that we had quite a, a period of time where there were negative. For people who understand, here's how it works. Ordinarily, when you have, have bonds going up in price, that kind of means you're in a recession and therefore stocks go down and vice versa. The problem we have over here is if rates get high enough, they start to derate, they start to lower the PE ratio. The PE ratio is basically kind of what you're paying for earnings over time and you discount them back. And so at some level of, 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 of as rates rising from one to two to three, That kind of implies better earnings, stronger economy, more demand for money, earnings up, prices up But at some point above a number that you start to have to go and discount those higher earnings at a higher rate. And that pushes stock prices down. And so where that inflection point is, is unclear. And and, and all we can do is infer from historical data, this chart and the one above. Mike, you, you love these charts. You want to talk about it?
1: Um, yeah, no, so both of these charts, I think, are actually really important because they identify effectively the Fed's reaction function. So, uh, so I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a function of do bonds protect the portfolio or do they not protect the portfolio? Bonds will always play a role in a portfolio, whether that is a function of you have a defined need and a date at which you need that physical quantity of cash, right? So that's, this is one of the unique features of bonds is, is that they have a guaranteed return of principal at a set point in the future. So in some ways, I don't care what happens to bonds in the interim. But what I do care about, and this is I think what Harley is referring to, is what is the Fed's reaction function to things like inflation, to equity market sell-offs, et cetera. And this I think is where it starts to get kind of interesting. And, And I would highlight that to Stephen's point, like in the past couple of days, we've begun to see the correlation here not tick lower but tick up higher, right? So the one-year rolling daily correlation between bonds and equities is starting to show signs of protecting. In other words, the market is beginning to question, is the Fed really serious that that their focus is exclusively on inflation? So to me, the the question remains out there, what role do bonds play in portfolios? The real key where they have been superstars and shining lights is when you have this positive correlation, they simultaneously provide you with a lower volatility asset to own that has a guaranteed return of principle. And because they have negative correlation on a price basis, value basis with the rest of the portfolio, they dampen the overall volatility of the portfolio. The risk is if they begin moving back into a negative yield correlation that that dampening is reduced. So in other words, the portfolio becomes more volatile. And this is where I think that Steve has been remarkably honest in his questioning this and saying, if that happens, I want to make sure that I have something in my portfolio that protects me against a crash because my clients can't afford that equity market crash. But we're still not certain whether this relationship has changed irrevocably. And that that's what I don't know yet. Right, that's what I'm struggling with, and I and I hardly. By the way, I agree that the Fed has certainly given us the indications at this point that that they want to be very serious about this.
3: What really worries me is I think there's a trap door at some rate level. I think when we hit that trap door, you'll see stocks and bonds go down, but you'll see everything else go down also because we're a financial economy where For good or for ill, that's how we, you know, have advanced in the last, you know, since 1971, is an unanchored fiat currency where we have leverage, not in the sense it's a bad word, just leverage that there's more money relative to, to assets out there. And if we start to discount those amounts of money at a higher rate, their present value, this price goes down, and that could at some point create a margin call situation. Uh, the Fed has stepped in twice now to go and stop two gigantic margin calls. In, in December 18 and March 2020, they basically stepped in and said, unlimited, you know, a pool of money here to go and stop the margin call. Um, and, and, and this is what worries me is, um, where is that level? And, and maybe and maybe what you're saying, Mike, is that the Fed's going to go, knows that level, at least has a darn good guess of it. And they're going to step in at that point. And in that case, everything works fine, I suppose. But... Once you, there is a problem when you get past a certain level, you kind of can't get two back in the tube again.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, by the way. I mean, this is why it's a question. And so then the question becomes, Harley, so so we've helped Stephen in the construction of his portfolio by introducing the portfolio hedges, for the downside in equities where we're not certain that the bonds are going to step in anymore. So as I think about how to protect Stephen's portfolio or what the the risks are that somebody in an RIA space who's advised their clients in this manner. And as you point out, this is a a very robust and powerful portfolio construction technique where he's doing two things. One, he's diversifying his sources of income and return. And the second is, is he's recognizing the cost that volatility explicitly plays in a portfolio effectively rotating the portfolio to the less volatile assets as volatility rises, right? It's a inherently defensive strategy. And the real core of the question is on this slide and to a certain extent, the slide I believe that comes right before this, um, which is you know this chart, um, which you're sourcing from Gerald Manack and, uh, and a, a bunch of others. My pushback here is we just don't have a data series that allows us to say that this is robust over an extended period of time. We have a theoretical framework that says, as you move to higher inflation, the Fed is going to be forced to consider inflation in its policy choices. And we've seen that play out, but we don't actually know, like there's no way for us to know that that is going to be be the behavior. And I think that's part of what the market is broadly telling us. I'm gonna introduce a slide that um, uh, is not, approved and will therefore piss off my compliance. (laughs) But this is, I just created this because I wanted to answer the question. Um, And so what this is actually looking at, this is looking at the same thing that you had on the chart before. Can you guys see this rolling one year correlation? I can't see it on my screen, okay. So what this does is this is this conditional correlation that you've heard me introduce before, where the idea is if I only isolate for where the S&P moves more than 1% or falls more than 1%, what does this correlation look like? And Harley, this is exactly why you introduced some of the interest rate hedge strategies, because one of your concerns was that if we were looking at a situation where that relationship was going to flip, it would be a particularly bad hedge in the event that rates themselves or inflation itself was the concern. And we, we largely saw that. If we look back over the last year, we've really seen a very negative correlation emerge between bonds and equities when equities sell off a lot. In other words, equities selling off a lot is actually more correlated now with interest rates going up than interest rates going down. And that's a substantive change versus the past several years. Now, exactly as we were discussing before, it appears that the worst of that is past us. And so we've moved slowly back into a positive relationship. But-
3: You're cherry picking over here, number one.
1: Well, of um, course I am. That's, you know, I, me and George Washington, I don't chop down the trees, I just get the cherries off.
3: But, but, but I, I mean, I mean, strangely enough, you really think about it, when we have the highest correlation of stocks and bonds, negative hedging when they hedge each other, was yep. when they both hit their all time highs. Yep, because it depends upon do you measure daily changes, weekly changes, monthly. There's a whole lot of different ways you can measure measure things. Um, I, I think at some point you got to go and um, uh, you know open your eyes and notice that that there's your bonds are have had the biggest drawdown like since '94 maybe worse, um, and stocks are you know they they they, they, they they're slowly getting hurt. Um, it's kind of interesting that stocks have not gotten hurt more considering what's going on. Steve, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back. I think that your strategy will beat its – call it a benchmark, okay? I think it beats its benchmark. But I think what the risk here is that that just means it'll lose less. And so the question is, how do I go and manage that process of this whole thing? I know you have a bunch of – Mike
2: – So, Harley, that's exactly what I designed it to do. Yeah.
3: So I yeah, mean, if, right? if,
2: if you think about, right, what what is – a retail client, I mean, and granted, I don't have a lot of RA partners, I can. Um, I, a lot of people don't even know my strategy exists, it is what is out there, and all I've done is say, look, I'm not saying and I tell people, I'm not saying you're going to go up when the market goes down. But my goal is for you to lose less. So when the market's low and the formula drops its hedge, well, that hedge that's dropping is now buying in equities at the lower points. And that's exactly what if you start really deconstructing the strategy, and I know Mike's been through it, is that it effectively sells near the high and buys near the low. And you look at asset allocation models and other models, they don't really do that and or they do a very poor job of it so yeah i'm very clear my goal is for you to lose less and losing less is a huge deal because of the markets down 50 percent and you're only down say 20 i think that's job well done
1: oh i i so so steve just to be clear i don't think harley is, is alluding that that is a bad obviously down 20 is not the outcome that everybody wants but on a relative basis totally agree The discussion here is more along the lines of what could be done similar to the introduction of the equity specific hedging to improve that even further. And of course, I mean, the obvious one, you know, Harley, you've designed strategies. We currently have them deployed, strategies deployed in our portfolios that allow you to hedge in an option like fashion, right? So this is just like we've introduced equity options here there's the potential for introducing a convex hedge on the rate side and you know my question that i would direct to harley and i think a lot of people want to know this as well is what you know harley if we assume that inflation is close to peaking maybe not has peaked right so exactly to your point you know if we were to enter into a regime in which CPI continues to rise, I think we all fully understand that the risk to bonds is, is a significant further sell off, that ultimately the Fed would be forced to respond.
3: Yeah. Mike, why don't you go to slide six?
1: Slide six.
3: Yeah, I think it's uh, that's the one. One more. Sorry. That's
1: all right. Ooh, we're uh, right. Oh, okay, forward one. Here we go.
3: This over here really is where I'm trying to get my hands up around things. Is like, what is the reasonable playing field we're working with here? Like, are we looking at tens or what? Two seventy-five, two eighty, whatever they are, and maybe they can get to three and a quarter where they peaked out, you know, at the end of the last, you know, mini cycle. Um, and so our range really is we've kind of seen what it is. It's 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 one to change the downside, three and quarter the upside. Oh, we can manage with that. But are we really looking at a possibility where the playing field could be five? I think, I think if we see rates at five, like it's a whole different animal for everything across the board. Um, and this over here, this chart, this is, this is old Wall Street lore, which is basically the tenure rate should roughly be equal to nominal, nominal GDP. So that's inflation plus real. Um, and the idea is there should be some kind of correlation between what the economy generates and what the cost of capital is supposed to be. Um, it's a good story. It's a reasonable graph, I suppose. Um, and I could live with the idea that we're going to get a slowdown in the economy, that the cure for high prices is high prices, and that we get GDP down you know, to a half. But I still would say that we're going to have inflation of foreign change for the next year or so, which puts nominal at five. If nominal's at five, then tens are the wrong price right now at 275. And, and and I think if I think with rates at five, we got to rethink everything in the world, don't we? I,
1: I I certainly think that that is correct. That if we do end up with nom- with a sustained nominal GDP in the plus five percent range, that that does begin to raise the question of what is the appropriate interest rate. Um, I think that's, you know, that and, and that is the core of the issue. And so you you have a couple of charts in here and others have done this as well. And I just want to highlight that there's a there's a couple of good papers that are out there. But in particular address this component, the, the dynamic of owner's equivalent rent. And so you know you and I have had extended conversations, particularly with Mike Ashton about this dynamic. Owner's equivalent rent often gets a really bad rap, right? So it's a made up number. You know, the Fed is asking people, how much do you think your house would rent for, et cetera. There's a, there's a fairly deep misunderstanding about the dynamic of OER, which is pretty important when you consider it represents close to 40% of the CPI and about 15% of the PCE. And so what you're trying to highlight with this chart is that the dynamics of home prices have not fully fed into things like owner's equivalent rent. Others are pointing out, and I would, by the way, agree with this, that part of the risk is is OER can effectively be thought of as a slow moving average of home prices or a slow moving average of market rents. And so it is very hard to imagine that for the next two to three years as that moving average flows through and just to orient people on what is happening there, when you see a Zillow apartment rent index or a Core, um, uh, a CoreLogic home price index, you're seeing the transactions that occurred in that time period. What the OER is trying to do is it's saying, well, wait a second, not everybody sold their house, not everybody rented a new apartment There's some fraction that is unchanged because it was already under contract. And so OER has this slow moving dynamic that perversely, even if the economy slows, even if we see rents begin to retreat is going to be slow to bleed in. And so I I think it's entirely plausible that you're correct that having seen close to 20% home price appreciation and 20% rent appreciation in a short period of time, Unless we experience severe negative outcomes going forward, it's highly likely that we experience a lagged positive pulse on inflation that keeps it relatively elevated. That's the point that you're really trying to make here, right?
3: Yeah. Now, I'm I, kind of pushing the ball along over here, getting back to Steve's portfolio. Um, let's go to slide. is 9 or 10, okay. one where we have the um, uh, spoons versus uh, Fang stocks. Okay. So Steve, you have a combination of SPY or a variation thereof and Nasdaq QQQ or some variation thereof. And, and, and those stocks have done extraordinarily well. I would argue, one, because their earnings have been terrific, but two, because they're effectively 70-year duration bonds. Like we know Amazon and Tesla will make a trillion dollars in 30 years. I'll stipulate they will make a trillion dollars in 30 years in earnings. But what are those earnings worth today. And that's why they perform the very bond interest rate linked. I'm concerned about how you go and, and allocate between SPY and, and QQQ when we have this rate uncertainty out there, because to own QQQ, you kind of own a almost a levered SPY. And so it's kind of an interesting little dynamic between the two of them.
2: So, so how am I allocated with? How does it do that? Well, the, well, the formula looks at the one that's at least volatile and puts more money in. So the strategy overweights compared to the two, the S&P 500. But the, the reason I picked them is almost pretty simple. You know, again, coming back to my retail experience, you know, just sitting across the table with people is they get these statements, you know, from their brokers, you know, 5, 10, 20 pages of stuff. They don't even know what it means. But they turn on the TV that night and in the corner, the news, it tells them these three indices, you know, the S&P, NASDAQ, uh, sometimes small caps and 10-year treasuries. And they go, well, if that's green, then they want to log into their account and see it's green. And so you look back uh, and, of course, we can kind of nod to Mike's research on uh, index investing and what's going to happen with that over time. But simple is people want to understand their portfolio. So I just allocated to the two highest performing indices. Uh, In fact, all I've done is really created a way to hedge index investing because everyone wants to be in in indices right now. They want to be in those. And all I did is said, fine, I'm going to give you the same thing you've got, but I'm going to give you the risk control that you can't get by just popping all your money in SPY or QQQ.
1: And again, the the, the point that I would make here, Harley, is is that it, it actually doesn't matter per se going forward, what he chooses to allocate to. I understand the point that you're making that there can be an embedded interest rate sensitivity that is higher for these names. Yes, exactly. But the flip side of that is that those names also are extremely unlevered, right? So they don't have the default risk associated with the higher interest rates that I would argue we're beginning to see impact many of the highly levered, more speculative, less profitable names as well. So again, you know, if I go back and I look at 2000, the NASDAQ is speculation, highly levered, low earnings, et cetera. Today, it largely means quality, dominant positions, high profitability. You know, the, the multiples are not actually that much higher in the fan, you know, the, the fangs. Than they are in the market in total. It's a very very different dynamic. I mean, one of the things that I keep coming back to, and I think this is one of the really, you know, so Steve hit on another really important component in dealing with retail clients. RAs are constantly struggling with the dynamic of, you know, education and awareness and the ability to have people understand and see the components of their portfolio. I'm a huge fan of how Steve chose to approach this, and I'm also a huge fan of the fact that recognizing some of the risks that he was facing, he chose to diversify his sources of protection. It it it, for me the question is should he be should he be bidding for another source of protection? The question somebody hit on, you know, is the dynamic of a rate hedge is it appropriate at this point in time, or as you described, with the analogy of convexity and mortgage bonds is the horse already out of the barn and we should be thinking more about traditional risk protection in terms of just reducing exposure, et cetera? Well, I've
3: argued for for 15 years now that the uh, uh, convexity vortex, the the, the impact of mortgage hedging in the overall bond market, it's old news, man, it's it's gone. After Fannie and Freddie blew up, the game was over. When Fannie and Freddie, they were basically government-sponsored hedge funds, each had a trillion dollars of being long mortgages, short swaps, long options, running an OAS arbitrage. They're gone. And once they left, all the hedge funds that did that trade, they left also, because all they did was back into Fannie's OAS model and front-run them. You have very few people that actually run an OAS mortgage arbitrage anymore. Most mortgages are owned by index funds, and if the index is 35 and they're 35 and the mortgage market extends by three years, well, so does the index. So there's no reason to rebalance a portfolio. I do not believe that mortgages per se have a significant impact on the overall market. Uh,
1: so I, I certainly agree with you on that. Um, and you've, you have been making that point for 15 years that the change in ownership structure, the change to matching a benchmark as compared to managing a duration risk has changed those characteristics. When you think about the dynamic of the risk to bonds, though, does it really boil down to effectively a forecast of nominal GDP? Is that like going back to that chart, right? Which I believe was slide uh, six yeah. or seven. Yeah, six or seven. There we go. This
3: I, I think the point I'd make is this. You don't buy life insurance because you think you're going to die. If you buy life insurance, you don't win when you die. You buy it so you're not worried about things and, and you've reduced, you know, your anxiety level for your family. Uh, if, if you're gone in that same respect, I think that putting on interest rate hedges, which simplify offers as, 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 as in some clever ways. I think that's very important now because the, Will we get a 4% or 5% rate? I don't know, probably not, but I don't know. Will we get, will inflation keep on going as high as it is for the next two years? I don't know. I, I, look, I knew, I knew Mike and, and Snyder were dead wrong six months ago when they said, you know, inflation was transitory. okay, that, that, that I called you guys out on. I get no credit for it, but whatever. Um, but going forward, I don't know. What I do know is this, that if we do get significantly higher rates, so we're talking four handle on rates, it's going to be a very very sad day in financial markets, and 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 and, and, and that's, the, that's 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 a problem we got to worry about. Be, somehow you got to go and close that door uh, in, in your portfolio. You can't have that, uh, that that risk available, which means that volatility in equities is still relatively low. Um, I mean, the, the VIX is what VIX the, is
1: twenty and change. Yeah,
3: I mean that, that, that's that's the wrong number relative to what's going on in the market right now. So it's relatively simple to go. And if you don't don't buy options via investing in some of our products or directly, at the very least, at the very least, you could buy back options you're short. And I know none of you guys are probably actually short real options, but you are. You're short them embedded in certain securities in certain structures. Those I'd be looking to go and trying to unwind somehow.
1: And and so that's actually a really good way of framing it. And I'm gonna pull back up that chart very quickly, the one that you know I love, this one right here. Because that is, that is actually a super valid point, Arlie, which is that there is, particularly in a portfolio structure that is trying to manage the portfolio volatility using a mix of bonds and equities, there has been an unqualified benefit associated with this positive correlation, right? In other words, even though you knew you were going to get a positive nominal return out of bonds, They function to ensure your portfolio and reduce the overall volatility. What you're highlighting with this risk of a 5% plus interest rate is that the world truly takes on totally different characteristics. That might be the perfect time to buy bonds, right? You might find that that is the ideal time to buy bonds, but the transition to that period has really been hard for for bonds to protect your equity portfolio. So this is this is part of the dynamic. And again, I just think, you know, I think what Steve has done here is fantastic. I think one of the benefits is with the very modest going forward changes, you know, he's able to continue the dynamic that you've heard me talk about over and over again, which people have to stay invested. There is really not an alternative, particularly if my theory is around the dynamics of the impact of passive and I would point to the fact that in the midst of what you know, people are legitimately discussing tactical nuclear weapons and a you know true regime change on a global basis. The fact that we're within you know kind of seven percent of all-time highs, in some ways, is the scariest thing of all time, right? I mean that that is possibly the most frightening dynamic. You would expect that we would have at least some indications of concern, um, but they're they're really not there yet, and so I think you know. This is the core question. Do you, do you need to layer on that additional protection and how would we think about doing that and are the tools in place? So I think, Harley, you've constructed a very interesting strategy that can play a role here. Steven, you've built something that's really interesting in terms of maximizing the protection in the portfolio. This is an area that I think we're gonna to have to spend a little bit of time working on. And I, you know, you hear, hopefully the audience here is the genuine question, because exactly as Harley said, we don't know, right? We genuinely don't know what happens next. I think we 100% look at what's happened with Steve's portfolio and the markets in total and say that they've done what they're supposed to do, which is protect portfolios within the constraints that, that they have. And Steve, you bring up a brilliant point that losing less is winning, right? So that's, you know, that's a really, really important thing to remember. But going forward, we do have this question of, is there an incremental change? I wanted to try to open this up for the audience because we're actually, believe it or not, we're approaching an hour already. This time just goes by so fast.
2: Um, well, and I want to add something, Mike. Please. It is a, It is a typical portfolio when it loses less, has no dry powder. What's cool about my strategy is because it has the hedge, it has dry powder because the formula releases that hedge and then says, well, what do we do when we're not hedging? Well, you have to take that money now and buy equities. And that's what's really cool is you, you look at other strategies, they, they just don't have the mechanism to do that.
1: Well, this is, this is what Harley is referring to when he says that you're running an unlevered risk parity strategy, right? So you, unlike a levered strategy, will continue to benefit from the lower volatility and the defined risk characteristic of bonds in that framework. So I, 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 I think we 100% see that and agree with it. It does become this interesting question of, what do you do now as harley points out with rates we're kind of half pregnant right bonds have done an extraordinary sell-off and it becomes a question of what's the next step in that process if it continues man is Harley ever right like this is going to be a different world with five percent interest rates all right all right i I don't think he's right either steve but that's okay
2: but yeah Um, that's the interesting thing is the system hasn't changed and everyone wants to believe we're in a secular rise in interest rates because we've been in a secular decline in them so naturally we've been down for 40 years well gosh we have to go up but you know you've had some really smart people on here lacy hunt jeff snyder i know these are you know harley's best of best friends and they you, know, you start looking at the system and you realize it hasn't changed What you start to find out is a lot of investor psychology plays into this. And what are you seeing right now? Well, bond prices are going down. So what do investors do at a point where we know historically when the yield curve inverts, you probably should be buying bonds. Well, they start dumping them. The more it goes down, the more they dump them. And then where do they go? They cram into equity. So equity prices stay elevated. And it says, look, the S&P is magically a safety net. And then the economy ends up into a recession. The curve steepens, bonds rally, stocks blow up, and people lose all the time. I mean, it's, it's just all about people doing the wrong things at the wrong time. But sometimes investor psychology makes things look the way we want them to look when it's really the system hasn't changed.
1: Well, and... Um you bring up a really interesting point. There's a, you know, the chart from um, the Bank of England, a lot of people cite and point out that we have a 5,000 year history of interest rates and we hit the lowest levels in history, right? Um, One of the things I think, so one, we're talking about long rates here, not short-term rates and the short-term rates, somebody else in the questions has asked the dynamic of, why does the three month versus two year, or why does the three month 10 year continue to steepen? And the answer there is very straightforward because the three month literally reflects the immediate policy choices of the Fed. And so the Fed has started a hiking cycle, but they have not gotten deep into that hiking cycle yet. So the three month rate continues to be relatively low. The 10 year rate reflects the full cycle, or at least. Um, what actually the market appears to be pricing is more than a full cycle of hikes and then additional cuts being put in. If I do that same dynamic and I go forward one year, so I now I'm incorporating what the Fed has given as indication, then that one year forward, three month, 10 year rate is fantastically inverted, right? It's like a 3% rate versus a 2.4% rate. So it's about 60 basis points inverted. Uh, the point that I would make with this chart is to me, what jumps out is the Volcker era, right? The unprecedented high interest rates in the modern environment. And I think Steve has a really valid point, which is if I look at this in a long-term construct, Harley, I don't see anything unusual about 2 to 4% 10-year rates. Hmm. I mean, what feels extraordinary to me on this chart is the 1980 peak. And I, I do think that is one of the things that people need to keep in context here, is, is that you know, we we have these short data sets for which we have an extraordinary amount of detail, and then we have a bunch of made up data sets that the Bank of England and Homer and Scylla and various others put out where we're trying to construct a historical interest rate, but we certainly don't have anything resembling a Fed policy chart from 2400 BC. Um, so you know we 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 genuinely don't know what these charts look like, nor do we have any real indication. But this is to me the single strongest argument for the the Steve you know Lacey Hunt, Mike Green, Jeff Snyder correct case that ultimately interest rates are not going all that much higher. Um, all right, let's open it up for a few more questions. Um, there was a question on OER that it's like a lake heating up. Absolutely, it's global warming incarnate. Um, let's see, which component of Fed policy do you think has been a bigger contributor to the rise in inflation? Zero interest rate policies or balance sheet expansion? Um, or something else altogether? What do you think, Harley? QT, QT. Quant- quantitative easing, you're saying? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I've heard this from a number of people as well, that the zero interest rate dynamic was far less important than the risk support that came through quantitative easing. And broadly speaking, I think that um, that relationship, you've heard me and others talk about it, that every time the Fed engages in quantitative easing, interest rates actually rise because of the support for risk assets as compared to sell off. Um, let's see. Um, We have a a nice question from Patrick. Forgive me if this is an idiotic question. Um, There are no idiotic questions, but can someone walk me through exactly what are the components of M2 actually are? Specifically, is it fair to say that M2 goes up, therefore money supply goes up? So this goes into the quantitative easing and balance sheet expansion question, Harley. Harley, you know, my pushback on the M2 equation that people constantly hit on is the the biggest driver of that M2 was the technical component, right? Effectively, lines of credit were drawn down, turned into checking deposits, negotiable order of withdrawals. That in turn creates the condition under which uh, that M2 expanded. But it's not really a radical change in the money supply. Now you're you're going to push back against that, but but that would be my read on it.
3: I think I think you're 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 going the circular route of trying to avoid saying that. Um... Uh, the Fed, is, the QT is money or QE is money printing, um, which I think it is. And, and you don't. Um, not. <laughs> well,
2: you want me to explain to you how it works? I'd be happy.
3: That's
1: a perfect opportunity. Steve, why don't, why, don't, why don't you answer this question as well?
2: So why does QE cause a money supply to grow? That's a simple question, right? Is because... When you look at what the Fed's doing, it's forcing the creation of a bank reserve. So, where does a bank reserve come from? Well, when I deposit money in a commercial banking system, I am owed interest on that deposit by the bank. They have two things they can do: they can lend it, or they have to go and buy a interest-bearing asset, a treasury security, a mortgage-backed security. So all the Fed's doing here is saying, Look, we need to swap that mortgage back or treasury security over to our balance sheet. so we need to force create customer deposits to do that so we need you we need to suppress interest rates cut back lending which is what you see happen during qe is oftentimes lending starts to die down is because all they're doing is forcing the banks to take that customer deposit and back it with an asset so they can switch it and that's what causes the money supply to rise the fed's not printing money they're literally just forcing the creation of deposits feeds right back in the m2
1: Arlie, what's your reaction there? My reaction is the clock's run out, hasn't it? Nah. Well, this is this, this is um, this has been a really interesting dynamic, but but what I want to highlight here is is that the the reason we had this discussion, and the reason we brought Steve on, is because this is the sort of thing that we're actively going through at Simplify. We're talking with registered investment advisors. We're trying to build products. Harley's strategies around interest rate hedges, for example, are a perfect example of it. Um, the downside protection vehicles that we've introduced into the equity portion of the portfolio with Stephen. These are the conversations we're trying to have on a very regular basis, and we encourage others to reach out to us. Um, you, know, you may have unique problems that we've not thought up solutions for, and, and we want to have these discussions. This is a hard one. We don't know the answer, and I wish we did, right? And so this is, in some ways, Harley, you're getting a bit of a mea culpa here, which is saying I don't know what happens next, right? I genuinely don't know, but what I do know is is that we can actually work together to figure out ways to protect a portfolio in this type of framework.
3: I just want to know when you're going to admit that a 11% PPI is is, is inflation. Um,
1: but I will admit that an 11% PPI is an increase in prices in producer in producer goods. Okay. That I will completely agree with, and leads to
2: lower CPI because foreign producers will want to import more to the U.S., driving consumer prices down.
1: Well, or, or sure. it means destruction of real demand, which in turn creates. Yeah. I, th- I think so. I mean that that's the one thing that I would emphasize for people as we close out, which is the uncertainty that you're hearing, whether it's from Harley, myself, Stephen. We know that's not good, right? Uncertainty creates conditions under which people generally pull in their risk horns. Uh, and, and one of the points that I would make on things like PPI or CPI and the high volatility inflationary conditions that we're seeing is we actually don't have a good sense for whether corporations are making money or losing money. If I sell something out of inventory and I make money on a historical cost and then have to replace it with more expensive inventory, I haven't actually made any money. So this is going to be, this is a really interesting environment. Um, and Stephen, I, I, I just want to emphasize how much I appreciate you reaching out to us and trusting us to help work with you to further improve a product that is, as Harley points out, and as, as I would emphasize as well, I think you've done a remarkable job of building something that is designed to do exactly what you marketed it as, protect portfolios. i I, i'm convinced that we can do an even better job going forward as we continue to work together on this
2: yeah i appreciate that mike and to all the other ras out there and money managers you know whether you think equities are going to go up or down interest rates rise or fall we're all three of us here just to have a discussion and, and share our opinions and our views on that but what's really cool is you can go to the simplify website and you can find products that you can either hedge your risk or amplify your returns depending on what your belief is And that's not something you can find anywhere else. And so to be able to add those to the portfolio of my strategy to say, Hey, I want to have more risk control than I had before. Well, I can do that. Or I can say, Hey, I want more upside potential. I can do that too. So I think people out there really need to take a look at what your company offers. Maybe they don't have, maybe you don't have something right now for them, but get familiar because what you're doing at Simplify is really cool. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future.
1: Well, thank you very much, Stephen. That is really, really nice of you to say. And, and Harley, you are very well behaved today.
0: Well, uh, I want to thank you guys for participating in today's podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Stephen, for your time. Mike and Harley, you guys are awesome as always. Uh, and of course, thanks to our audience who spent some time on their Thursday afternoon with us. Um, we will have a replay available of today's episode communicated via email early next week. So look out for that. And if you haven't already signed up for our next episode, please do. We're going to have it on May 12th. And we're going to have Andrew Trasher for Financial Enhancement Group. And we're going to talk about market technicals and volatility. So with that, I wish you a great, long, happy Easter weekend. So have a great day, everyone.
4: Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for informational purposes, and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis, without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management, Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management, Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.